Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Save for Later from Guardian Australia, a podcast about internet culture and the tabs our brains just can't close. I'm Michael Sun. And I'm Alex Gorman. Coming up, the Y2K aesthetic is back. From what we understand from that time period, you had kind of this you know, excitement about the future and then at the same time you had like a rapid advance in technology. So you ended up with just kind of a lot of experimentation in, in fashion and graphics. But is there more to the Naughties revival than one millennium bug? This kind of machine is looking for these like new aesthetics to, to hype up for a few days and then it goes on to something else. And it's just that the cycle has moved so quickly now. But first, we are here, we're gathered today to say goodbye to a shared and dear friend, the iPod. Rest in peace, the iPod, which has been discontinued after 20 years of glorious life, sparking an absolute wave of iPod nostalgia. Boom. That's iPod. I haven't had one right here in my pocket, in fact. There it is, right there. The P in RIP stands for pod. Rest in pod. <laughs> Michael, tell me about your earliest iPod memory. My earliest iPod memory was being an absolute brat. Okay, like, I don't know if you've watched a show called My Super Sweet 16, but basically, like, there's this iconic scene in the show where um, this girl turns 16 and her mum gives her a Lexus. <laughs> she starts crying. She's like, I didn't want the car. And she has, like, a breakdown. That was literally me upon finding out at, like, age 10 or something that my parents had given me an iPod shuffle for my birthday. The audacity. Oh, you wanted a classic? I threw this, like, massive tantrum. I was like, I don't want to shuffle. I want to be able to listen to my music in order. Because at age 10, I was already, like, a extremely annoying music purist. <laughs> um, and eventually, I tantrumed my way into getting an iPod Nano. And that was my first iPod. This is our age gap speaking. I had to work for my first iPod. I paid for <laughs> it myself with the money I earned working at the Superbarn Emporium as a checkout chick. And... Truly, what a glorious device it was. You had your coming of age on this iPod. I had my coming of age on this iPod. I distinctly remember many a broken-hearted car or bus trip between Sydney and Canberra, just mm. watching the rain streak down the windows of a bus and listening to whatever music would kind of exemplify my teenage breakup of the time. What was your, like, quintessential breakup song? I think my quintessential iPod breakup song was Dreaming of You by The Coral. So it's got this really hooky kind of bass line and it's a little bit optimistic. This song came out the same year that the iPod was released, but I was listening to it a few years later. The, like, core line of this song is... I still need you, but I don't want you. 
and that truly spoke to all my teen relationships. Sounds highly 2000, sounds highly noughties. You saying that has actually just like sparked another memory in me, which is this like distinct recollection. One day I just stumbled upon the iconic Amen song, Fuck You, I Don't Want You Back. Is that what it's called? <laughs> um, and this was like literally like I had downloaded the song from LimeWire or some other like illegal service just accidentally onto my iPod. Oh, sure, accidentally. accidentally you accidentally, accidentally installed accidentally. a VPN, <laughs> accidentally set up. <laughs> several different kind of routing systems to get this song and then accidentally dragged and dropped it into your iTunes, accidentally changed its name, accidentally uploaded the album art and accidentally put it on your iPod. Exactly. I just tripped and fell over and suddenly was on my iPod. But you just mentioned the amount of time and energy and resources it would even take to put a song on your iPod, especially for those of us who, once again, purists, we would curate all the metadata so it was like perfect, perfect, perfect. Did you do that as well? Yes, I did. My my form of adolescent self-care was actually curating my iPod's metadata because I, of course, also couldn't really afford to buy the music I was listening to on an iPod but was tech-savvy enough to be able to steal it and I would spend a lot of time making sure that the 30 different versions of Elliot Smith's name were in fact all one version (laughs) and the other thing that I would do quite obsessively is sometimes the genre of a track would sort of be auto-allocated and I would obsessively change my genres so that they better represented what I thought the correct music genre was so I'd sit there with a (laughs) copy of the NME that had been air freighted to Australia and given to me by one of my dad's friends in hand and be like, no, the strokes are not just indie. They're New York garage rock. And you were absolutely right. So it's actually Apple who's wrong. It's iTunes who made the mistake. I actually (laughs) think if I tallied up the amount of time I spent as a teenager tweaking my iPod's metadata, I probably could have learned another language with that time. The amount of times I clicked get info, like like that button was so toxic. Every time I clicked it, I was like, I, I know I'm just wasting my time here. So Michael, you also threw a wobbly at your parents because you refused the shuffle. I'm guessing you were a playlist maker. I actually was not. Really? I feel like instead of making playlists, you know, many therapeutic confessions on the show, I had no friends in like primary school or high school. I literally had no one to make playlists for. Um, Instead, what I regressed into was convincing myself that if I didn't listen to an album all the way through, as the artist intended, obviously, I was a worse person for it. I was like, I'm better than all of you chumps. I, I listen to albums, not individual songs. I feel like the medium of the iPod and the fact that there were all these songs available to us, and of course, if you're a teenager obsessed with music, you do not have the money to fill a thousand songs on a first-gen iPod, and you definitely don't have the money to fill 20,000 songs. I feel like they were just encouraging us to steal. I think for a period of time, it became really cool to steal as well. Like piracy was the bomb.com to use a term from that era. <laughs> like if you had access to the highest quality rips, to the most complete and typo free songs, you were 
a king. I'm thinking about like all those music blogs in their peak popularity, in the golden era of music blogs. There were some which would obsessively only upload the iTunes rips themselves. I'm talking the M4A files, not some dirty, filthy MP3. You know when it's 356 megabytes, it's going to be a like <laughs> pure, clear song. None of those, none of those janky one meg songs. And they would take hours to download as well on like dial-ups or like really bad broadband internet, but it was always worth it. Totally. I actually, I remember someone saying to me that because of the iPod and that this was like one of the great crimes of the iPod and of listening to music on your laptop, that we would be the first generation to experience a worse level of sound quality than previous generations. (laughs) It turns out they were right about that, but it was about like wealth and prosperity and like generational happiness, not about sound quality. (laughs) Do you think the way you listen to music and engage with music changed when the iPod came out? Oh, it massively changed because, you know, I was 15 or 16 when I got my first iPod and previously I had still walked around listening to music but it was on an emerald green Sony Discman Mm. and that meant I had to carry CDs in my school backpack with me. I had to be really careful about how I walk. Which by the way is incredibly chic and I mean that. I had a little like sleeve of the CDs. My friends and I would trade burnt CDs. I still have like some of them and I have no idea what's on them but they say things in all caps, like super late mixtape. But I couldn't run for the bus. I couldn't walk too quickly. I certainly couldn't dance around my bedroom listening to my Discman because you won't remember this since you were a literal child, but if you (laughs) jumped about, your Discman would skip. So those like early iPod ads of the people dancing around in silhouette... They were actually selling a proof of function, which is you have a portable music device with you here and if you move around while holding it, it's not going to skip. The music's not going to stop. The party will continue. What station? And that was an absolute revelation at the time. Those people in those ads were having the time of their life. They were cutting shapes across these, like, neon colours. They had, like, Jet playing beneath them, I feel. Oh, yeah, huge moment for Jet. There was this whole thing where I feel like this wave of Apple ads, specifically for the iPod, um, could make or break an artist's career. And, and I'm also thinking about, like, a few ads that came out maybe a generation later than that Jet ad, where it would show off, like, the whole spectrum of colours of all the iPod Nanos, and beneath it you could hear, like, Feist, one, two, three, four, which just went absolutely viral. It's so fascinating to me the way that musicians could be cherry-picked by Apple at the time and become huge, given that, you know, the iPod really was the harbinger of the transition to the way that we engage with music now, which is that we can have it all, all of the time at once. As they were sort of encouraging piracy by giving us all this space that we couldn't afford to fill as they were sort of completely upending the way the entire music industry worked, they were also operating as these kingmakers who could, like, determine the success of a little indie act and 
absolutely blow them up by featuring one of their songs in an ad. Or they could like weirdly insert an entire U2 album onto everyone in the world's <laughs> iPods. Do you remember that moment? I remember that so distinctly. Like when that happened, it was weirdly the talk of the entire playground. Like suddenly you had all these teenagers at school talking about how weird it was that U2 had landed on their iPods and iPhones. It was just like a very strange cultural moment. And everyone was furious, at least like I was furious, and began to realise that like your music was not your own when that happened. Which of course then led to the advent of streaming and now of course we understand that none of us own any of our music and we're trading off this kind of like almost infinite library of music for many other social ills that streaming has caused that we've got into already in this podcast in the past and won't go into again here. I feel like now that we all rent our music, like I personally, and it could just also be an age thing, but I'm so much less engaged with music than I was when I had a sense of ownership of it and had to kind of take care of it like I was tending to a garden. Absolutely. Having that limited choice, like actively choosing, like these are the songs I'm going to put on and having to really think about it just increase the sense of connection and kind of belonging that you got from what was on your iPod. And now we all just put on whatever playlist the algorithm surfaces for us. Well, that's why there's a level of nostalgia for the iPod beyond just the tactility and the obvious, you know, like being able to hold something, touch something, right? I I feel like it's also the fact that there was a level of care and and a level of intention placed into putting on music on the iPod that is kind of missing now, unfortunately. And hey, without the iPod, maybe we, as in this podcast, would not even exist. There is definitely a convincing argument that could be made that the iPod is why podcasts came into the world. In 2004, there was an article in The Guardian, which was trying to come up with a term for these like little pockets of audio, which had popped up around the internet. And one of its suggestions, based on the name of the iPod, was to call them podcasting. Personally, I'm deeply disappointed that the other two suggestions in Ben Hammersley's column did not get picked up because we could be right now audio blogging or we could be committing an act of guerrilla media. We could be a guerrilla media about internet culture and the tabs our braids can't close. And let's just think on that. Next, where did the Y2K revival come from and why won't it go away? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. 
All right, we're in the midst of a big nostalgia episode this week. As we all know, you know, everything comes in cycles. We can't stop bringing things back. And one trend that just won't go away is Y2K. Yeah, I am seeing so much Y2K. So references to the very late 90s and early 2000s and the kind of technological optimism that came with us in the fashion industry particularly. So there were lots and lots of Y2K looks both on the runway and in the street style at Australian Fashion Week last week. I saw a lot of people carrying around little brightly coloured baguette handbags. As someone who was like not properly alive during that time, I think it's such a hot look. And of course now, like everything, it is all the rage on TikTok. People just wearing like low-rise jeans galore. What Gen Z thinks Y2K fashion is. Super stylish and cute. Which I think is like essentially discriminatory against anyone with or without hips. Truly the low-rise jeans are something that I have lived through at once. I have worn hipster helpers, which were very wide fabric belts that you had to wear just to make sure that your butt crack would not emerge through. But then there are other elements of the Y2K look that I can get behind. The fact that Kim Kardashian in Balenciaga is now doing the like wet look, full pleather jumpsuits that were famously worn by Britney Spears in Oops, I Did It Again when she's like in the shiny red jumpsuit in space. Like that I approve of, the kind of glittery eyeshadow, even the return of things like sparkly beads and butterfly clips. Like these these I can cope with. And whew, boy, do the Gen Zs love them like they're new. It feels like almost more than a trend now. Like it's become the defining aesthetic of our era. To achieve the Y2K aesthetic. This style originates from the late 90s to mid 2000s, features hyper feminine silhouettes, lots of fun colors. And yeah, I had to go to a Kinokonia to buy the fruits catalog back in the day or obsessively troll through Live Journal for my elegant goth Lolita looks. But now the algorithm just serves a new look up every day. And of course, what we do here, like the real journalists that we are, obviously, we are getting to the bottom of these trends. Today, we're speaking to the people who literally named them. I was in this Facebook group way back in the day called the Y2K Aesthetic Institute. It's now defunct. But when I was there, I got to watch as our very special guest today combed through the internet and helped define these trends as they were popping up on Tumblr and other corners of the web. They've now expanded out from just these early days and they're now fully-fledged trend historians, you know, proper internet aesthetic archivers at the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute, also known as CARI, its acronym. Today on the podcast, we have Evan Collins and Froyo Tam. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Pretty excited to be here. I'd love for you guys to tell us a bit more about, like, what the Y2K aesthetic is and why we have returned to the early aughts. We kind of define it as the futuristic zeitgeist of the late 90s, early 2000s. From what we understand from that time period, you had kind of this you know, excitement about the future. And then at the same time, you had like a rapid advance in technology. So you ended up with just kind of a lot of experimentation in, in fashion and graphics. A really good prime example would be Bjork's work for Me Company. If travel is searching... If you've seen the post um, single covers, the album cover, her fashion, homogenic. All right, so we're talking iconic Bjork album covers. She's a robot. We're talking the movie Hackers. Hidden beneath the world we know. 
is the world they inhabit. That movie comes from such a strange moment in time because it's like 1995 was like this real peak of like, and I, I found some articles, you know, back then that everyone's like hyping up cyber and people are getting sick of the word cyber. And like, they're actually starting to have, there was kind of that moment when it was really seeping into like the cultural mainstream consciousness of the idea of hackers and like, oh, we're accelerating so quickly. They're hackers. Hackers penetrate and ravage private and publicly owned computer systems. Hack the planet. Hack the planet. And you ended up with like, you know, the same summer I had like uh, hackers that had um, the net with Sandra Bullock where she gets like... <laughs> Iconic movie. Iconic movie. So this kind of like tech optimism, I imagine The Matrix has a part to play too. You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Mm, all the time. Maybe it's just because this happened deep in my the distant recesses of my memory. But it seems so much of the kind of look and material of this time just blends in together. Like I cited Britney Spears earlier, but I guess like she's a very kind of contested Y2K figure. I see like that look referred to as McBling as well. Yeah, I feel like this was often a debate that I would see in the Y2K Static Institute Facebook group as well. I mean, the, things get conflated a lot. And, you know, it's not like anybody's like fault or anything. I understand that, like, you know, Y2K kind of have, can it, a word can become something that's associated with like a whole overarching series of things. McBling being kind of the post Y2K era where it was all about, for lack of a better term, like, bimbo glorification and really leaning into the excesses of pop culture. But Ange, how do we do it? Velour tracksuits. Bonus points if it's a fun color and you can use a small dog as an accessory. It's like Paris Hilton. Stop being poor, lol. Mean Girls in High School Musical. It's Wild Child. It's the simple life. It's juicy couture track pants. It's... Swarovski crystals on absolutely everything. It's putting on a Von Dutch cap. It's basically my dream aesthetic. Whereas Y2K is really about that bug and glitch art and truly believing that tech might save us. I mean, because the further we go into it, the further we find, you know, these ones that, we, that we've kind of worked on recently, you know, where there were other influences going on at the time that um, don't get picked out as much. There's like a, we call it Millennium Disco. There was like a 70s sort of disco thing going on around that time. And there was um, Electro Clash, like the music genre had a real like kind of new punk, new revival of punk going on with it, with a lot of styles. And they all kind of mix and match, you know, and match together back in the early 2000s and that gives us more of that idea of, of what was actually happening is, is this kind of really expansive range of, of little kind of a world of aesthetics at that time and, and how they kind of overlapped with each other and stuff. And it, that does get sort of muddled a bit, I think, in, in some of the conversations that we have around aesthetics and, and media and, and revivals and things like that. And then when you identify something that might be its own distinct subgenre, talk to me about coming up with the names. I mean, that's one of the most fun things about the way that you do aesthetics from things like soft colonial <laughs> wanderlust to sea punk. How do you decide what to call something? We try to think about like the motifs that really do help describe it. And then we kind of like think more more about like how this applies culturally and we kind of like really do examine like more of the cultural factors of it. Like I know with McBling, we were thinking a lot about McMansions, the iced out jewelry, like Johnny Dang, for example. And then of course, adding Mc to something already implies a sense of mass production. So it's a really easy yeah. like tick. My name's a lot of the time, especially when I was doing this early on, like very ungainly, <laughs> unru- like they're kind of a mess. Sometimes we would, they're just like a series of, 
for example, like um, before we had um, global, yeah, you know, we have Global Village Coffee House and uh, Fraser Bain, which is one of the other ones. Before that, like it, it's just a way to understand it. Um, yeah, I, it was called something like an incredibly long, ridiculous name on the Facebook group. It was like. Nine, late 90s world sophistication baby boomer <laughs> urbane vibes like it just kept going and going i just kept adding more and more adjectives to it i was like okay well i don't include this one too like wait no we're missing something and yeah. so I definitely i try to rein it in a little bit now with trying to make something a little bit more yeah concise and like uh, concise and understood like a little bit um easier we spend so much time on this website the consumer aesthetics research institute just looking at everything in that time alex have you found a favorite Oh yeah, I have a hard favorite aesthetic, which is disco deco. So it's that period of the late 60s and early 70s when Studio 54 was kind of very much the height of culture when Halston was designing his beautiful floor length, kind of almost flapper-esque, but very like streamlined 70s design. So it's an intersection of 70s excess kind of angel dust and partying with the cleaner look of art deco. Everything is really lush and extravagant and beautiful. It sounds like gorgeous disco soul. Like, I just love that look. Look, I feel like it's so hard to choose a favourite. And, like, this is a total cop-out answer. But, like, I'm just so on the fence about so many aesthetics if I'm going to be choosing my favourite. I mean, I'm very partial to corporate grunge. That's the you-wouldn't-steal-a-car aesthetic. So the intro to Rage as well, I imagine. Exactly. That exact, like, really... Um, blown out Xerox font. Something that's really interesting about this kind of gravitation back towards Y2K and the mileage I guess people have gotten out of it in like our current day is that to me the sort of late 90s, early 2000s were really the very last period before complete like free trade and globalization and then like shortly after that the rise of online shopping meant that everything became fast. So trends still kind of moved somewhat slowly then. Clothes were still a little bit expensive. You had to buy and keep things for a while. And now we have not just fast fashion, but ultra fast fashion. We have Shein dropping 300,000 SKUs in the first four months of 2022. We have fast furniture now, so we can switch around our interiors whenever we want. And of course, it's all available to us at the click of a button with sometimes three-hour delivery. So I wonder if this is almost the end of the trend as an era. You know, Y2K really strongly references the time period that it came from. Like Art Deco, we know we associate that with the 20s, but now everything's happening all at once. So are we even going to be able to catalogue contemporary aesthetics when there's such atomization and such overabundance? A lot of the time, you know, the, every, the kind of system that we're in right now is, is always looking for something to like constantly hype up or like, what's the next in the, you know, we need content. We need a constant feed of something to, to kind of have articles about. And we've sort of noticed just how this sort of happens with some of these where 
you know, this kind of machine is looking for these like new aesthetics to, to hype up for a few days and then it goes on to something else. And it's just the the cycle has moved so quickly now. We've also seen this happening like on TikTok and we've talked about on this podcast itself, right? That idea that you will, you can literally see the birth and death of trends and aesthetics within weeks. I mean, like Twee being that trend, which just like came up and then died within days. Honestly, this is um, an example of like late capitalism trying to like, you know, constantly look for the next thing to profit off and squeeze it dry until it doesn't become cool anymore and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. As we get further and further into late stage capitalism, this all gets accelerated to its breaking point. I think it's legitimately kind of horrifying. Do you think the work you do at um, Kari then is almost kind of a resistance to that? Like by looking back and actually slowing down and cataloging what could be considered the ephemera of the past, do you think that ensures them a kind of permanence um, even as we move into this cycle where things are speeding up so fast and things are being forgotten at the speed of light? Well, in a sense, uh, visiting the website does encourage you to kind of slow down, think and absorb, you know, the sort of like lexicon that we have. It's a work in progress always, but we would want to make sure that when kind of people are looking at these aesthetics and these categories that we we have on there, that we do try to kind of give a social or like give social, cultural, economic sort of context to why these existed. Not so much as just like, here's the next new thing, like go do it or something, you know, like kind of what happens with some of these things now without any sort of more in-depth thought behind why did they exist in the first place? Like, what was the forces behind making them popular? Like, did they, you know, exclude people? Like, what, like, what kind of other context was going on? It's just, I think, it's just sort of helpful. It's helpful to have like a more holistic understanding of the world that we like live in. Evident Froyo, thank you so much for coming on this pod and teaching us, giving us a crash course um, in the wild cornucopia of aesthetics the internet and beyond has to offer. Thank you so much. Thank you so yeah. much. Thanks for having us on for sure. Michael, we've come to the end of the show, that lovely time where we give our readers a little snack to take home. What's top of your list this week? Top of the list is a show called The Flight Attendant. It's back for a season two. If you haven't heard of this show, it basically stars Kaylee Cuoco, who you'll know from The Big Bang Theory. She is in the role of a lifetime. No, I promise you. I promise you. (laughs) She's in like a completely new starring role here, playing, of course, the titular flight attendant who becomes embroiled in an international spy thriller mystery. And she's just so good at being like so darkly funny, but then also propelling the emotional beats of what it must actually feel like as a regular person to become, um, you know, trapped in this like murder mystery that plays out over the course of a few seasons. Okay. I'm sold. I'm sold. Season two is now out. It's I would describe the style as, like, noir pastiche and, like, a pastiche of, like, James Bond and all those spy thrillers. And it's very, very funny. I'm a coconut through and through. Alex, what is your top of the list? So top of my list this week is also a show which is also back for its second season, and that is Made for Love. It's a tech dystopian story about a woman who has a device implanted in her brain that allows her uber creepy tech billionaire husband to watch her every thought and it's her attempt to escape that. It stars Kristen Melotti, who you might remember from the amazing time loop comedy Palm Springs. It is 
not quite as dark as it sounds, but possibly even darker. And it's streaming now on Stan. Thank you all for listening. To do all the usual stuff podcasters ask you to do, you know, leave us a review, subscribe, whatever you get your podcast, blah, 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 blah. And you should also subscribe to our newsletter, which is where we get a lot of ideas for this show. It comes out every Saturday morning and the only place you can receive it is in your inbox. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning, who also handcrafted the music. The exec producers are Steph Harmon and Miles Magnoni. If you've stuck around for this long, we're giving you a post credit scene. We're giving you a little treat, if you will, in honour of the distinguished member of the Technological Hardware Academy, we have put together a small tribute to the late, great iPod. I remember the clicking, the clicking being very satisfying. I remember, I think there was like, this sounds so dumb, but there was like freedom that came with it. Like you could be on a school excursion and suddenly you didn't have to carry around like a massive CD wallet. I remember road trips as well. So like the passenger being able to not just pick a CD to put on and change in the five CD disc player in the boot, but actually have like total control for four hours in a car. I think a lot of my teenage identity was about my taste in music. My friends and I would do the earbud in the ear each on the bus, like swapping songs and artists we were into. I would say that there was like a bit of a competition for who knew the most indie bands. Like remember that Threadless, was it Threadless, that shop that was online? There was that T-shirt that said like I listen to bands that don't even exist yet. Like that was the vibe when I was in high school. So as a result, I spent many hours downloading cool music onto my um, iPods. What a time that was. The cassette that had a wire coming out of it and you pushed that into your car cassette player and your iPod plugged into that, that was just a thing that we accepted as very high technology for a while. Like, that was a fascinating time in culture. Every hairdresser car, every Barina XL suddenly could have an iPod attached to it. So when I was about 10, I really wanted an iPod um, and I'm trying to convince my dad to get me one. And my dad, being a brown dad, was like, no. The next time he comes home, he brings me this knockoff iPod from, I don't even remember the brand, but truly, I think at the end of the day, it didn't matter whether it was an iPod or not. It was just the fact that I could access the music I like. Um, So that was pretty fun. Yeah, I had a fake iPod. I remember like me and my friend Josh were like working the iPod bars, just us two. And it wasn't really busy at the time. And we're like watching like this music video of dogs slow motion, like on trampolines with like lasers. And it's like bonkers because it's just like their faces and lasers. And we're just losing our shit behind the bar. And like all of a sudden, like this lady was with her kid, like kind of like shopping the iPod section. And she just saw like this rockets of us. It's losing our shit. And she comes up to us and it's like, what is going on back there? And we're just like this. And we turn the screen around to show her the dogs on trampolines with lasers. And she's just like, are you guys stoned? And I was like, he is. And then I looked to see who's asking the question. And it's Susan Sarandon. <laughs> Uno, dos, 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 tres, tres, cuatro, tres, cuatro, tres, cuatro, tres.